Well, in your Pastor Ben's defense, when we met, I didn't have a beard and uh, did not have the same haircut as him. And so I just figured, you know, why not go for broke? Um, well, it's so good to be with you all. Uh, also, uh, it's just sweet to be with another new city. It's sweet to be with other uh, believers in our Lord and Savior Jesus. And so this morning, I get to jump into Luke chapter 10 with you, and we get to hear uh, a familiar story, but hopefully in a fairly unfamiliar way. So if you have a Bible, if you have a phone, if you have something, go ahead and get the text in front of you. That is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Hear now the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, that is Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And, Jesus answer, and, and the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him. And he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We pray that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might behold wondrous things out of your law, namely your son, Jesus. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Shine your light on this word and in our hearts that we might see clearly. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, you might not have much context for the Bible, but you are probably familiar with this story. You've heard of the story of the Good Samaritan. It's actually fairly well known just culturally. It's one of those rare Bible stories in that way. But as we look at this story, I really want to look at it under, under this one sentence that I'm going to give to you. So this is kind of the whole summary of everything I'm going to say. And that is, to love your neighbor, you must see clearly, feel deeply, and give freely. Again, to love your neighbor, you must see clearly, feel deeply, and give freely. Now, to kind of break up the text, really there's two sections. There's the setup uh, which is kind of the, the situation that we're in, and then the story that Jesus tells. And so let's look at the setup together in verse 25. It says, and behold, a lawyer. Now, in the Bible, when you hear lawyer, don't think law and order. Think Bible scholar, seminary professor. 
That's what a lawyer was in that day. He was a, he was a student and a master, an expert in the law of God, uh, namely the scriptures. And so this lawyer, it says, stood up to put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's significant because the question is not about some way of life. It's the way to life. What shall I do to get there? That's where I want to go. What do I need to do? And so the fact that he asks this question, what shall I do, actually reveals something to us about this lawyer's heart. It shows us that the way that he views the world is that God helps those who help themselves. He, he really believes that the kingdom of God is a meritocracy, that, that you earn your place in that kingdom. Another way to put that would be that the, the lawyer believes that it's all about grit, what he can do, rather than grace, what only God can do. This is significant for understanding this whole passage. And so in verse 26, Jesus responds. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And it's always important to get our view of the Bible from Jesus himself. And I'm just going to put it out there. I bet Jesus has a higher view of Scripture than most of us in this room. Because he knows that these questions can only be asked and answered with an open Bible in hand. He knows that the, the deepest meaningful questions of life, like, hey, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what comes after death and how do I make sure that I'm on the good side of that can only be answered by God himself revealing that to us. And so Jesus takes the lawyer and says, hey, go look at the scriptures. But he also asks this second question. He says, how do you read it? That's important. Jesus is not asking for a literacy lesson here. He knows how to read. But what Jesus is saying is that the way in which you read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, at this point wasn't Revelation, it was Malachi, but the way in which you read the scriptures is maybe one of the most important things about you. So he asks, how do you read it? And the lawyer responds in verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6 there. And he says, and your neighbor as yourself, which is Leviticus 19. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, the first time you read that, you're like, Jesus, are you playing a game with him? Like, what's going on? I thought this was about grace. I thought this was about you doing it all and, and, and us trusting you. But notice what Jesus did not say. He didn't say, do this and you will inherit eternal life. He says, do this and you will live. In other words, this is Jesus' vision of the good life. This is Jesus' vision of what it means to, to live fully alive. And I would submit to you more than anything else, more than purpose or pleasure or happiness or wealth, what you want more than anything else is to live fully alive. That no part of you would be shut down. And so Jesus says, if you want that, if you want that, love the Lord your God with all of yourself and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I also work as a psychotherapist. I have a mental health practice. And, and in that camp, in that, in that world, uh, there's a lot of contested beliefs about what mental health is, ironically. And, and so why that matters is because I take my cue from Jesus. I take my cue that, that Jesus' vision of mental health, of personal wellness, of, as I said earlier, the good life, is right here written in the law, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength, and to lay your life down for the good of your neighbor. You do that, and you will live, Jesus says. And so the point that Jesus is trying to make here is what the lawyer's saying is actually easier said than done. Because if you, if you start with the question, what shall I do, the very next question is, have I done enough? Have I done enough? 
that's just the way that it's going to go. And, and so whether we're asking about how do we inherit eternal life or we're asking how do we make it in this world, am I rich enough, am I successful enough, am I attractive enough, am I intelligent enough, those questions are always asking and we're asking ourselves when we have to start with the question of what shall I do? Have I done enough? And, and that really is the lawyer's question. And, and so we see in verse 29 the heart of the lawyer's question is, In verse 29, he says, but he, desiring to justify himself, that's so significant to understanding everything in this story, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, the lawyer had the right answer. Jesus himself said so. He said, you've answered rightly. But the problem for the lawyer was not ignorance. It was lovelessness. In other words, he had orthodoxy. He didn't have orthopraxy. He knew what was right, but he didn't do what was right. That's significant. Because Jesus is trying to put the question back on the lawyer and saying, hey, listen, you might have all the right answers. Show me with your life. And the lawyer has to try to wiggle out of it by justifying himself, redefining the category of neighbor. Who is my neighbor after all? Do we even know? Can you even know? So that's the heart of his question is is kind of dodging the claim of love by asking Who is it really, after all, that I'm responsible for? Who is it that I should really look out for and be concerned about? And now, listen, the the lawyer kind of comes by it honestly, because he was good to his people. He was good to his tribe. In that day and age, it was actually said that, uh, that the call to love was really just for the people of Israel. It was just for the Jewish people. So much so that there was this statement that if it was wrong, if a Gentile woman, when you hear that here, non-Jewish woman, if a Gentile woman was in labor, it was wrong to help her because you'd just be bringing another Gentile into the world. That's how deeply ingrained this bias was for my people, my tribe, my nation, over and against any other people, tribe, and nation. And so the question, who is my neighbor, comes out of that comes out of that heart-level desire to exclude the other. It's significant. Because beneath this question really is to figure out, who is a non-neighbor? Who can I deem uh, unnecessary for me to care about? Unworthy for my compassion and care? See, religious people have been manipulating this book for millennia to decide and discern who they wanted to let in and who they wanted to let out. That's not a new thing. It's been going on for a long time and it still goes on to this day. And so whenever the word neighbor is redefined and confined to my people, my tribe, my group, injustice is sure to follow. Brothers and sisters, this is happening today on the the political left and the political right. And so we have to stand against it and say, how does Jesus define neighbor? And let's ask that question and see what the text has to say. Because Jesus responds to this question, who is my neighbor, in a classic Jesus fashion, by telling a story. So look with me at verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Let me pause there for a moment. When I was in college, I went to the University of Central Florida. I was a substitute teacher in Orange County, which is a huge, it's the, it's the county Orlando's in. It's the, it was the 10th largest school district in the nation at the time. Um, and so I particularly liked to choose Title I schools that were in the not-so-nice parts of town. And I didn't have an iPhone at this point. So what I would have to do, and I also rode a motorcycle. 
So what I'd have to do is I'd have to look it up on Google beforehand, and I'd have to memorize. I had like these weird mnemonic devices to memorize the turns and the direction, which streets, how far. And then I would just get on my motorcycle, pray, and just hope I found my way there. And so certain times when I would teach at high schools, because they start so early, 7 a.m. in the morning, it would be 6 o'clock. I'd be on my motorcycle in a not-so-nice part of town, and I would have my hand on the clutch, ready to pop it and just bolt any moment if somebody were to come up, because you feel a little vulnerable when you're not inside a car. That was nothing compared to the Jericho Road. Let me give you some context for what this, this road was like, and it matters because in the 5th century, a Christian man named Jerome tells us that the road was still called the Bloody Way. The Bloody Way is what the Jericho Road was known as. Why does this matter? Because it means that you might say, you might argue that what's about to happen to this man traveling on the Jericho Road, he could be partially responsible for it. He should have known better. You don't travel the Jericho Road by yourself. And if you don't have to travel it, you don't travel it at all. But here's this solitary man walking down the Jericho Road. And, and so what happens is actually maybe due to his recklessness in some ways. Look at verse 30. It says, And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Oftentimes when we're wondering who deserves our mercy... We ask questions about responsibility. We ask questions about, does this person, like, did they, did they do all that they could with what they were given? Were they really responsible? Because if I just give my mercy to them, what if it's just squandered? That's a question that rises up in all of our hearts, mine too. And this, this story is actually setting us up to see this man was reckless. He was irresponsible. He should not have been on the Jericho Road because what happened to him is what anybody would have expected to happen. When the lawyer's hearing Jesus tell the story, he's probably like, yeah, totally. Of course that happened. It's the Jericho Road, the bloody way. That's what happens with people that walk on that street. And so the text says that he got beaten so badly that he was left half dead. And when you read the Bible, every detail matters. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste his breath. Why half dead? Because look at the next verse, 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now a priest and a Levite are the religious leaders of the day. And, and so these men would have known Numbers 19.11, which says anybody who touches the body of a dead person is unclean for seven days. So it matters that he appeared to be half dead. Because as the priest and the Levite walk by, they see him and they think to themselves, I'm not going to touch this man because if I do, I'm going to be ceremonially unclean for the next seven days. And so they pass by on the other side. And so really what was happening is in this moment, there's a conflict between their desire to remain ceremonially clean versus getting close to a man in need. You could say that the claims of ceremony trumped over the claims of charity in this situation. This happened for the priest and the Levite. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The text doesn't say why they passed by. So anything I'm saying right now is just conjecture. But here's another possibility. Maybe they were in a hurry. Maybe they were going to a church meeting about how to clean up the Jericho Road and make it safer for travelers. Maybe that's why they had to pass by on the other side. Can't be late for church. Maybe... 
just maybe they were afraid that the people that jumped this guy are still waiting in the, in the background and they're going to jump them if they come in and help too. And so why this matters is that all of us, all of us, for reasons like wanting to stay clean, being late, being in a hurry, being afraid, all of us are limited and hindered in how we love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, Jesus is getting right to our own hearts here. So now the lawyer might be asking, okay, Jesus, you know, so it wasn't a priest, it wasn't a Levi, who's next? Maybe a Pharisee? Maybe a lawyer? That'd be cool. Maybe just some Jewish layman. And what Jesus says next scandalizes him. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, you cannot imagine the outrage. Not a Samaritan, not a half-breed, not a mudblood, not an infidel. We've got Bible proof texts to say that we should despise these people. These are some of the most hated people by the Jewish people in all of the world. You can't tell me that a Samaritan is going to be the hero of your story, Jesus. Like, if Jesus said this today, he would be canceled for it. You don't talk like this. It's devastating. But Jesus is trying to get at the lawyer. He's trying to get at, you remember that, that short little air, part of the sentence that was in, in quotes almost, which was his desire to justify himself. Jesus goes straight for the heart. He's going straight to our hearts in this text as well. It's important to notice something that happened that, that would be easy to kind of gloss by. And that is, the priest saw and then stepped away. The Samaritan saw and then stepped near. The reason why this is, is because to love your neighbor, you must see clearly. You have to be able to see clearly. And so, the way in which he stepped forward to see this man's hurt and moved in when he saw the hurt is something that's indicative of Jesus throughout all of the Gospels. If you look at the way that Jesus rebukes his opponents in, in the Gospels, he's often chastising them for their blindness. Only a few chapters earlier, there's uh, Jesus at a party at a Pharisee's house named Simon. And this not-so-classy woman comes in and starts washing his feet with her hair and her tears and weeping. And, and do you remember what Jesus said to Simon? Do you remember his his question to Simon, he said, do you even see this woman? You see, because the desire to justify ourselves blinds us to our own need and to the need of other people. And so if, if your heart is to justify yourself, you're not going to see what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. Because to love your neighbor, you must be able to see clearly. This is important because what I'm saying is the scriptures teach that it's not your lived experience or some standpoint that you have that enables you to see clearly. It's your humility. I was at a coffee shop not too long ago, and uh, as so often happens for me, I got into a conversation with another customer there, and, and he asked me what I did for a living, which is a, a, a lose-lose for me. I'm a therapist, makes people think I'm psychoanalyzing them the whole time, or I'm a pastor, which is probably even worse for most people. And so I went with the pastor route, and, and immediately he made a comment like this. You know, I'm not really into the whole church thing. All they want is money, and they never do anything. They never give any of it to the poor. 
So I'm, I'm genuinely curious about this. I want to hear there's a story behind that, right? Because that's not my experience with church, but maybe it's his. And so we start talking, we're in this conversation, and, and at some point, maybe I was getting a little snarky, I have no idea, but at some point, I, ge- I just gently asked him this question. I said, hey, so it sounds like you really care about the poor in our city. Um, I'd love to hear, what are some of the charities you give to? He's like, well, I don't really give to charity. Interesting. You see, because the desire to justify ourselves blinds us to our own hypocrisy. And that's what Jesus is talking about here when he just very subtly says that the Samaritan saw and he moved near. Now, if you were to take the command, love your neighbor as yourself, and double click on that word as, what you'd find there is empathy. Because in order to love your neighbor as yourself, you have to imagine what it must be like to be them. You have to put yourself in their shoes. Or in this situation, homeboy didn't have any shoes. He got them beat off of him. And so you put yourself in that person's situation. You imaginatively identify with them so that you can love your neighbor as yourself. Empathy is at the core of loving well here. And so let us, as the church of Jesus, be the kind of people that humbly wonder what it's like to be the people on the other side of the aisle. Let us be the kind of people that have this curiosity about us that, that rather than standing in judgment over people we, uh, by how they, how they bear their weight in their life, we, we stand with them in compassion at the weight that they have to bear. Let's be a curious people, an empathetic people, to love our neighbor as ourselves. But, but verse 33 says, when he saw him, he had compassion. And so it's not enough just to see clearly, you also must feel deeply. He had compassion. This is what psychologists call attunement. It's feeling felt by another person. It's, it's when I can see them in pain and it actually begins to bring me pain because I so see what, it like, what it's like to be them. So when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, I, I think the reason why this was is because the Samaritan knew what it was like to be a man in need. The only reason the Samaritan of all the people was moved forward to touch this man was because the Samaritan knew what it was like to be untouchable. He was acquainted with his own need for compassion, and so he was enabled by that to move towards. Another way to put that would be he has mercy for those in need because he knows his need for mercy. That's the difference between the Samaritan, the Levite, and the priest. So this is emotional language, to see and to have compassion. He was moved from the inside out to act on behalf of this man. Because to love your neighbor, you must see clearly. You have to feel deeply, but you also need to give freely. And so look with me at the Samaritan, because he puts on a clinic in compassion in verse 34. It says, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil, which would have been used to ease the pain. And wine, which would have been used to clean, to disinfect the wounds. Verse 34. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. You see, the, the wounded man was too weak to walk, and so the Samaritan put him on his own animal, and that means the Samaritan then had to walk. There's an exchange happening here. And so he didn't just drop him off at the inn. You remember, he stayed overnight with him, and he took care of him through the night to make sure he was nursed back to health. But that wasn't enough. Look at verse 35. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. 
And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, according to an ancient historian, you could stay at an inn in, in, the, relative, in the Mediterranean area, area at this time. You could stay at an inn for two months. Two months for the amount of money that he gave to him. Two denarii gets two months of stay at an inn in this day and age. This wasn't, you know, an overnight at a holiday inn. But not only does he do that, he gives him a blank check. Did you notice that? He gives him a blank check and he says, hey, whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Because for the Samaritan, it, there was no cost. You could summarize the way that Jesus is calling us to love our neighbor from the text, using words from the text like this. He saw, he had compassion, and he gave. He saw, he had compassion, and he gave because, you see, the Samaritan loved without prejudice and without price. Now we get to the end of the story, and Jesus asks in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. You get the sense of disdain. He's not even willing to say the words, the Samaritan. It's just the one who showed him mercy. But notice Jesus' question, because if you miss this, you'll miss the entire parable, which has been done for a long time by a lot of people. The question says, which of these three proved to be a neighbor? Do you, do you see what Jesus is doing here? Because this question is a clue to the whole story. In other words, who is it that Jesus wants the lawyer to identify with? Most of us would probably say the Good Samaritan, right? That's the way that this is read. There's even a video, you could find it on YouTube, of Christopher Hitchens, who's a, a late, famous atheist, big contender against the Christian faith, who, who said that he was talking to another Christian pastor, a Presbyterian, which is cool, and he was talking to this Presbyterian pastor who basically gave him a different way of reading the Good Samaritan story because up to that point, Christopher Hitchens, this atheist, thought it was just another moralistic tale, like Aesop's fables. Just a way you need to live, like be more like this guy. That's how you get there. You see, most people reject Christianity with a fundamental misunderstanding of Christianity. People are leaving the church in droves because they're not leaving Jesus. They're leaving a fake, false, inauthentic version of Jesus that I don't even know. This is important because what this fable, what this tale, what this story of Jesus is really trying to get at is who is the Good Samaritan? Who does the lawyer, who's the lawyer supposed to be? What he says is this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor, listen to this part, to the man who fell among the robbers? Whose perspective is Jesus explicitly telling him he should take? It's not the Samaritan. I get it. He says, you go and do likewise. That's coming. But it's not the Samaritan's perspective. It's put yourself in the shoes of the half-dead man. Which one of these guys would you want walking down the Jericho Road? You see, Jesus wants the lawyer to grapple with what would it be like to be a half-dead man in need of so much mercy that nobody gives it to you except for a dirty, scoundrel Samaritan. Because if the point of the story was, hey, go be like the good Samaritan, it wouldn't deal with the issue of his desire to justify himself or your desire to justify yourself. But if Jesus says, hey, you need to identify in this story with the half-dead man left to die on the Jericho Road, what it does is it cuts the root of our desire for self-righteousness. Now, if you're still not tracking with me, if you're like, listen, man, 
who are you? <laughs> People have told me for a long time the Good Samaritan is about being a good person, being a better person. And I'm not saying that that's not it. I'm just saying that that's not what Jesus has in mind first for you. Because in order to be loving like the Good Samaritan, you must be loved by the Good Samaritan. What I mean by that is, I'm going to argue right now, so bear with me, that Luke and Jesus, Luke, the author of this gospel, and Jesus had in mind that you would see Jesus as the Good Samaritan. This is why. A little bit later in Luke 18, you can flip there later, read the story. Jesus is on, guess what road? The Jericho road. And guess what happens? A man is there and everybody's passing him by. And the man looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And Jesus heals him. Sounds like the Good Samaritan to me. There's a point in John 8 where his opponents are saying, you must have a devil or you're a Samaritan. And Jesus, guess which one he contradicts? He says, listen, I don't have a devil. But Jesus, you're also not a Samaritan. But Jesus was okay with identifying with that people group. He was okay with it. He didn't actually push back on that one. He said, I don't have a devil, but I'm not necessarily, I'm not saying I don't identify with the Samaritan people. That's another reason why I think this. But here's another one. In the Gospel of Luke, there is nobody, nobody in the Gospel of Luke who has compassion and shows mercy except for God and Jesus. The very words, if you, if you go through the Gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and as you read them, get a pencil out and underline every time it says, and he saw and he had compassion. And he saw and he had compassion. And he saw and he had compassion. Over and over and over you see this is Jesus' behavior towards the weak and the wounded. There's an excellent article called The Emotional Life of Our Lord by a theologian named B.B. Warfield. And he says this, the emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to Jesus, I'm going to pause, just think about that. What emotion do you think was most frequently attributed to Jesus? You might have a, cl uh, a clue because I've been saying this, but he says this, to Jesus whose life was a mission of mercy is no doubt compassion. In point of fact, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him. More than any other emotion that Jesus feels in his time on earth, it's compassion. Let that sink in. Let that warm your heart towards Jesus, that he's not distant and austere and harsh and severe. Jesus, his heart breaks with compassion for sinners. He draws near to them. He burns from the inside out for those who are weak and wounded. Jesus is the man whose whole life was a mission of mercy. So Jesus didn't just travel the 17 miles or the 3,000 foot descent down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus came down from heaven to earth an impassable distance. Why? To move into your neighborhood. To take up residence next to you. To be your neighbor. You see, Jesus doesn't step by to the other side when he sees our need. He steps toward when he, ha when he sees our need. Because he's not put off by your suffering or your sorrow. In fact, Jesus' heart wells up with compassion when he sees you in need. Not only that, but he's not pushed off by your sin. It's in fact the very thing that moved him to come to earth was your sin. Why? Because Jesus, instead of being contaminated by other people's pollution, is actually overrides it and makes them pure. In other words, Jesus is contagiously holy. 
When he touches, death flees, life comes. This is how Jesus steps on the scene. Rather than becoming unclean by touching a half-dead man, he makes that half-dead man alive and clean. And so listen, there is something that will make Jesus pass by on the other side, and that is your own sense of self-sufficiency. Like if this morning you feel yourself adequate to the task, if you're good, he'll respect that. He'll walk by on the other side. But if this morning you feel your need for his mercy, that is his work in you. And so we've got this mantra around my new city in Orlando, and that is that all of us need all of Jesus for all of life. When I say all of us, I mean all of our makeup, our, the, entire, the entirety of who you are as a whole human being. But I also mean all of us across whatever dividing lines might be there. Race, class, gender, all of us need all of Jesus. We need him as our savior, as our friend, as our lover, as our husband, as our Lord, as our king. We need all of Jesus. We need it for all of life. It's not just a Sunday thing. <laughs> It's a Monday through Saturday thing too. We need Jesus for all of life. And I want to just ask, if you are in here this morning and you're skeptical or cynical, you've heard this stuff before, do you feel your need for Jesus this morning? If any of you are in here and you've been a long time Christian, like this, you've, you've read this passage, you've heard these things, do you feel your need for Jesus this morning? Some of y'all are lazy and lonely. Some of y'all are weak and weary do you feel your need for Jesus this morning? If you do, come. Let him bind up your wounds. Let him pour on the wine of his blood that we're about to taste. Let him pour out the oil of his spirit and anoint you with it. Let him take you up on himself as a beast of burden, bearing responsibility for all of your sins. Let Jesus be the one who draws near to heal your wounds from sins that you've committed and sins that have been committed against you. Because listen, you can only love your neighbor like Jesus when you've been loved as a neighbor of Jesus. He's the one who sees clearly, feels deeply, and gives freely. Now as we close, I want to look at something. Because Jesus does say, go and do likewise. And I want that for this church. I want this for this new city and my new city. I want us to go and do likewise and be these kind of people that spend ourselves in love for our neighbors. If Jesus is the good Samaritan, then each of us individually are the half-dead man that needs mercy from him. But listen, the church, all of us together, we are the inn and the innkeeper. What do I mean? Jesus could have ended the story after verse 34. When he drops the guy off, stays overnight, and that's just the end of it. But what's this whole business about paying the innkeeper, giving him a blank check, saying, I'll come back? What is all this? This is the last reason why I really do believe that this is Jesus, because the good Samaritan actually makes the innkeeper a participant in his act of mercy. What I mean by that is he's entrusted you and I. You and I. We are to steward his resources for the care of other people. Jesus has given this gift and responsibility to his church to continue his acts of mercy in the world. The church is to be a place for those who need mercy. Here's a quick litmus test. Could people who are weak and wayward sit down next to anybody in this room and have this sense that, hey, these people need Jesus as much as I do? Could the poor, 
come in and sit down next to the rich and say, hey, I know that we are different in other areas of our life, but I know one thing, that we all need Jesus for all of life. Is the church a place where people can come to receive mercy and healing? I want us to be that kind of place. I want us to be the kind of place where the healing that Jesus began at his expense continues at our expense. I want to be the kind of place that spends ourselves to purchase what we cannot earn in order, to, in order to give freely, expecting that Jesus gave us a blank check that he will pay up when he comes back. Let's love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's be known for that, being that kind of people, to be uh, an in for people that need mercy. And when Jesus comes back, he will repay us. Let's pray.